Welcome to the Edinburgh Vineyard Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us, please visit edinburghvineyard.org. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. ...which is a real, at least in my world, it's a very vineyard phrase. It's just something that uh, uh, we, we uh, repeat, we understand, we talk about um, uh, as often as possible. And, and uh, when I heard us start talking about these three themes last Sunday, and I began to think about what I would um, say uh, today, I actually realized uh, that Liz and I have been part of the vineyard for 30 years this month. Uh, and, and there was a, just a real sense of privilege that just kind of swept over the, the both of us as we kind of appreciated that. Um, I, uh, I, I gave my yes to Jesus when I was eight. Um, I, I won't tell you where because that might spark a riot. Um, but uh, I, bec- I, I really gave my, my, uh, my life to Jesus when I was eight. And although my parents encouraged me to plug into environments around church so that my faith would grow, I think the reality is I was just an incredibly slow learner. Uh, and I didn't really engage uh, with my faith until I was in my teens. Um, God used a very dramatic, very traumatic uh, event in my own life to actually set me on a path towards professional ministry, or as some of you might know it, you know, a, you know, a vicar factory, or you know, um, people who basically become ministers and do that vocation professionally. Uh, and it was only really at that point in my late teens that I began to do my, my best, really, to give God my full attention. And over the last, over over the next uh, five or, or ten years, I, I just started asking lots of questions of Jesus and lots of questions uh, of of the church. And I felt honestly in that time that I saw the best and the worst uh, of both. And it really left me thinking: there just has to be more. There just has to be more than what I've experienced uh, so far. And during that time, uh, there was one church that uh, Liz and I had the absolute privilege uh, of uh, being a part of during our our theological training down in London, uh, because at this church, worship was a priority. The Bible, the whole Bible, was absolutely central to anything that we did. And signs and wonders actually followed the outworking of the desire that this church community had to make an impact on the community uh, around them. And we loved it. You know, there were times when we would go to church on a Sunday evening and no one, and I mean literally no one, would want to leave. And the, the, the pastor would have to say, I'm, I'm sorry, folks, but we need to close the building. Would you please vacate? And we loved this place. And then we had to relocate as uh, kind of God moved us on and um, linked us up with a couple of churches in, in Scotland. But God didn't actually forget us because he had started to do something in our lives that was going to have an impact uh, for decades uh, beyond. And we were invited by a friend that uh, we were both at Bible college with. Um, who had ended up working as uh, the international conference director for the vineyard. And he was in town uh, with this guy called John Wimber, 
And he called me up and he said, you have to get here. You just have to come. And I said, Womber, Wimber, I mean, I never heard of this guy. And he said, trust me, you have to come. And, uh, and so I, I went alone. Liz actually stayed uh, behind with our young family. And there's all sorts of stories that kind of spin off uh, of that. But I, I went alone and I went to this conference and I honestly, the way I described it to Liz when I came home was I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, it was just like, oh my goodness, there are people here who believe and who are searching for the same kind of things as me. I never knew they existed. <laughs> and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And um, 18 months later, we were living just outside of Glasgow at the time. And 18 months later, we literally gave up everything. Uh, gave up our job, gave up our home, and we moved lock, stock, and barrel to London in order to uh, hook up with the vineyard. Uh, I went down on a Friday with a van load of furniture. Liz, on the Saturday, came with our three young girls and the goldfish <laughs> sitting on the front seat. And that's how this venture uh, kind of started. And... Um, and there's a whole other story around that. I mean, I, I could honestly just talk about this for, for days. Um, but I just remember on our first Sunday at Southwest London Vineyard, where we actually uh, settled, uh, we walked into the service and we were standing, worshipping together. And, the, the, uh, and we looked at each other and we just smiled. <laughs> we, just, we knew we were home. And, uh, and the pastor, John Mumford, came up to see us afterwards and he said, I think you're very brave. And I said, why? He said, because it must feel to you like you've just jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. But he said, I promise we'll love you and anything that we have, you can have in double portion. And I thought, that's a good deal. <laughs> so I think we'll stay. So we did. And we basically said, we're all in. And being all in with the vineyard for us simply means that if the pursuit of the kingdom is worth anything, it's worth everything. You know, the scriptures we're going to look at in Matthew 13 in just a moment really make that point. It was the first thing that we learned and it never left us. At the very core of our movement is a belief that there's an experience of God in Jesus that is so deep and so life-transforming that the only response is total commitment. And the man responsible for helping Liz and I to understand this as we stepped out in faith with so many other people was John Wimber, who was, in fact, the founder of the Vineyard Movement. John unpacked the mystery of the kingdom, which is that because of the coming of Jesus, we can experience the reign of God over sickness, that people in our day can actually be healed by the power of God, physically healed with the understanding that until he comes again, not everyone will be healed, but some can be healed. He explained that the mystery of the kingdom is that because Jesus came, men and women can come in droves to know God, even though it won't be until he comes again that the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And John was an incredibly faithful steward of the message of the kingdom. Everywhere he went, he emphasized the fact that men and women today can experience God's reign in their lives in a fuller way than they possibly realized. 
And I think so many followers of Jesus, and we haven't even got to talk about the people who have yet defined Jesus, but I honestly believe that there are so many followers of Jesus who fail to experience the fullness of what God has for them today because they think that they have to wait for Jesus to return. <laughs> and it's not true. So they'll say, oh, I could never expect to see a healing. I could never expect to see a miracle. I couldn't expect to have God answer one of my prayers in an extravagant way. So I'm just going to limp along. I'm going to drag myself to church, and I'm just going to hang on and wait for Jesus to return. And hopefully at that point, the good stuff will kick in. I think there's a lot of Christians. There's a lot of people who think that way. And John taught over and over again, no, you can have a taste of eternity right now. Yes, we will get the full banquet in the future, but we can taste it right now. We can experience a part of it right now. And I'm not this morning trying to involve us for a second in hero worship, but the Bible says, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. And that's what I'm doing this morning right now. John Wimber believed that if the pursuit of the kingdom of God is worth anything, it's worth everything. And that's why his life is worth imitating. Even though he was a founder of a new church, he was a very influential speaker. Uh, it just looked like this great big granddad, you know, on stage that you would love to go and sit in the knee of. And yet he would bring just such profound truths in the most simplest of ways that you could actually walk out of a session of listening to him and think, I can do that. I can do that. And he was a pastor of a very large church, but with all of these big things going on in his life, you know what he was primarily? He was primarily a follower of a crucified Lord. He was a follower of the servant king. Paul, uh, who was one of the leaders in the early church, says this. He says, sometimes I think God has put us apostles on display. Like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. And what Paul's describing there is a Roman parade in which the victorious generals would march into the stadium where all of the city had gathered to kind of welcome them back from war. And they would walk in as the victorious generals. And after the generals would come the troops. And after the troops would come the captured treasure that had been gathered up from the city that they'd just uh, uh, um, uh, looted. And then after that would come the conquered people in chains who would ultimately go on to become a spectacle uh, uh, for sport uh, in the gladiator's ring. And Paul is saying that this is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. If you're following a servant king, that, that you and I are following a servant king who bears the scars of sacrifice, it is nail-pierced hands and feet. And there's a price to be paid for followership, whether it's being misunderstood, whether it's being rejected, whether it's having to suffer for our faith. There is a price to be paid. And Paul goes on to say in the same verses, he says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. You know, that actually was John Wimber's life verse. <laughs> John was always saying that if you follow Jesus, you're not always going to look good. 
It's hard to look good and follow the servant king. It's hard to always appear slick and in control. It's hard to always be popular, respected, and acceptable when you're trying to follow in the footsteps uh, of Jesus. And John taught over and over again that faith is spelt R-I-S-K, risk. And sometimes you risk it and you fall on your face and you look nothing but foolish. But nobody promised that it would be that way. Uh, that it would be anything other than that way. Remember, uh, at one Vineyard conference, John believed that God had told him to step off the stage, go to a boy who was blind and in a wheelchair, and slap him across the face and say, See! And a couple of thousand people were watching as he made his way to the boy and did what I've just told you. Everybody was waiting for a miracle. Guess what? Nothing happened. Nothing. He looked like a fool. Absolute fool. First time I saw John in conference uh, mode was at uh, the Wembley uh, Arena in London. It was day two. Uh, it was the evening session. And the venue was packed to capacity. I think there were about 3,000 people uh, in this facility. And everybody was waiting to listen to John teach. And John started to pick up from where he had left off earlier in the day when he was interrupted by a lady who just started to laugh uncontrollably about two or three, maybe four rows back from the edge of the stage. And he stopped and he just folded his arms and he just looked at the lady and he waited for the lady to stop laughing and for her to kind of settle herself. And then he started back into his notes at which point she started to laugh uncontrollably. And so he stopped and he waited, he was patient. And he did that three times, three times. The fourth time it happened, John put his notes away, he folded his arms and he said, no teaching tonight because God is doing something different. And at that point he looked away to his right and he said, it's starting on the right-hand side of the room. Let it come, Lord. Let it come now. And he waved his hand, and there was this almighty Mexican wave of laughter that went from one side of the room to the other. I was not in the middle. I was on the left-hand side, and I can remember watching this happening, and as it got closer and closer, I'm doing, I'm doing nothing. I'm sitting thinking, what in the world is going on? I have no idea. I have no control over this, and it just looks weird. And I even I remember looking down the, the, I'm going, it's him, it's her, it's him, it's him, it's going to be me next. And I'm laughing uncontrollably, and it moves on from me right to the end. And as it finished, he said, he said now repentance. And he said, again. And there's a, a massive wave of repentance just came. People started to weep fell on the floor, they were crying, they were wailing, they were crying out to God, they were confessing their sins, and guess what? Healing broke out across the room. I'd never seen anything like it. So you understand why I came back and said to Liz, I think I died and gone to heaven. Because there was something awesome about what was going on. God was in the room. And you look at all of that and you say to yourself, well, what is that about? Well, it's quite simply about someone who made himself available to the servant king, the one who calls 
us to follow him no matter what. It's about the penny dropping in our minds and our hearts that living the life that Jesus has asked us to live does not concern us or should not concern us when in terms of how we look. Are we good or are we foolish? It should not concern us. What should concern us is are we doing what Jesus has asked us to do? John was not always the hero. John was often the fool. And you may not think it as a result of just hearing those stories, but John was a very uh, conservative Christian uh, in his views. He believed all of the Bible, and he would often say, if we're going to teach the Bible, let's teach the whole thing. Let's go for it all. Because he believed that when we give people an actual experience of the kingdom of God, there is always good fruit. So if you've got your Bible, if you have your phone, why don't you turn to Matthew 13 and verses 44 uh, to 46, and we're going to come into land with just a couple, three points um, out of this passage. I'm going to read the passage together first, though, because this is where the rubber hits the road. Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the outlook of choice, uh, on, the, on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. These are really, really interesting stories because there is treasure in both. In one story, the treasure is accidentally discovered, while in the second, it's intentional. But the conclusion we can draw is that the kingdom of God is elusive. It's not always obvious. It's clearly available. And it can be found anywhere. And it's for anyone. And it's worth having. That's the summary of these two stories. But I can also see it through the eyes of someone who doesn't understand its spiritual significance because these guys give up everything to get their hands on the treasure. They have something of great value and yet they don't have the money to buy it themselves um, and they don't have anything to eat as a result of their purchase. They don't even know what the treasure is and yet they've sold their homes. The second guy liquidates his firm so that he has no job. And both of them empty their savings accounts just so that they can say, this treasure is mine. It's mine. I own this now. And to lots of people, that kind of equals a bad decision. But if you put yourself in the story, you know, what things do you own? What are the most treasured possessions that you have? What would you part with on discovering that what's on offer is more than what you would be willing to sell? Your home, your career, your car. Well, you don't care whether your car is just towed away or not. <laughs> your car or maybe your musical instrument. What? Well, let me, you can relax a little bit. Because these stories aren't about what you have to do to win the kingdom. Okay? Listen to this. These stories aren't about what you have to do to win the kingdom. Um, but what you want to do on discovering that the kingdom is available. 
And that's because of three little words. In verse 45, it says, in his excitement. Some of the other translations that you can read will actually translate it in his joy. In other words, the man was glad to do it. He just said, this is of such worth. I am overjoyed to give everything up so that I can have that one thing. And when that happens to us, when we discover the, the kingdom, selling our homes, laying down our careers, or handing over our dreams won't even require a second thought. We'll think to ourselves, what is there to decide? You know, just, just take the things that I hold dear because the kingdom is way better. And if you're looking at these two buyers and thinking, but you've got nothing, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Because it's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Listen, the kingdom of God is the greatest treasure you could ever hope to find because it's what you're searching for, whether you realize it or not. And when you find it, you'll realize that it goes beyond anything that you could have ever hoped for. The kingdom of God is at hand and it's available to you. So three promises. Here are three promises that I see coming out of these two stories that are for us today. First of all, promise number one. If you give up everything for him, he'll make sure you don't want for anything. Liz and I can testify to that. And I know others in this room can do exactly the same. Sounds like a risky proposal because there are ramifications to doing or making such a decision. You know, if you sell your business, you don't have a job. If you give up your career, what's going to define you? If you surrender your dreams for the future, what's your future going to look like? But Jesus talks about the risk in this way. He says, I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or even enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? So don't worry about these things. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Looked up everything in the dictionary. Do you know what it means? Everything. Neither of these two characters in the story seem to be worried about how things are going to pan out. They're just thrilled to have the treasure. And that's because when you and I look to identify with the kingdom, a way of living where God is in charge, there is always, always enough for us. We are provided for. God promises if we give up everything for him, he will make sure that we want for nothing. And if he asks us to give up something that is precious to us for the sake of his plans, he will either replace it, again, that's our experience, or he will give us something that's much more fulfilling in its place. You do not miss out. You don't drop to a lesser tier of living when you give what, what you value in order to say that Jesus is enough. Promise number two, whatever you or I own is enough to buy the field. Whatever you or I own is enough to buy the field. Whatever treasure I have 
is enough to buy the pearl. Just think of something that you really want. You know, the most, in my life, the most expensive thing that I own is my home. I haven't quite paid the mortgage off, but I, I'm told the bank tells me that I technically own it. And when we discovered just a couple of weeks ago that our next-door neighbors had put their house in the market, we were thinking, ooh, how much is it going to go for? Therefore, that'll be an indication as to how much ours is worth. And uh, when, when uh, uh, they came back and said, this is you know, what we're selling it for, and we went, whoa, cha-ching, we're in, this is great, our house is worth something. But you know, and we're not selling anytime soon. <laughs> but even if Liz and I were to sell and we were able to scoop up all of the money that we were to gather from the sale of that house and we were to drop it into our bank accounts, it still wouldn't buy Liz and I the little two-bedroom apartment that I sigh over every time I walk past it when I go for a coffee to my favorite coffee shop in Stockbridge. And I tell you, Liz will tell you, I'll go across, oh, it would just be so nice to live there. I mean, that would be perfect. That would be a great destination place for us. Can't we move there? No, we can't. Why not? Because we don't have uh, enough uh, money. We love it, but we can't afford it. And there are lots of things that my money can't buy. But fortunately, the story Jesus is telling doesn't carry the same limitation. It's not that these men were uh, wealthy enough to get what they want. The point of the story is that they had enough. They had enough. And that's the promise God makes to us. Whatever we have in our lives, whatever skill set we have, whatever wisdom we can bring to a situation, it's enough for God to use, even if we feel that we've got nothing compared to the size of the dream that's in our heart. And maybe you feel inadequate and the thought of pursuing your dream is less appealing because you've no idea of what you'll find or how you'll react or what you'll say. Maybe you feel weary of welcoming and serving people um, in coming to church, the people you've never met before. Maybe you feel broken, confused, skeptical, and you've got a string of questions about what on earth is going on in the church today, Lord? Because that's where I was 40 years ago. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. God can use all. God can use everything to his glory. It's enough for God to use, not because we are enough, but because Jesus is enough, right? You understanding? Yeah, you're with me? Thank goodness for that, because the Bible says that no one is righteous, not even one. All of us fall short of God's expectations, which of course is why Jesus came, to invite us to trust him so that we could begin to see what it's like when he's in charge and he's done it with compassion and grace through his death on the cross. So what we need to understand is that Jesus is the only person who can lead us to the treasure and then give us what we need in order to access it. Promise number three and then we're done. Jesus promises that we get the treasure. He promises that we get the treasure. You know, giving you a clear picture of what that looks like is, I have to confess, a little difficult. 
because the kingdom is a mystery alongside of what's been revealed. But if we're honest about what we're looking for, then we'll find some clues. It may be that you're looking for security or fulfillment or love or any number of other things. And the story of the pearl tells us that we can get those things by giving everything to Jesus. The merchant was earnestly searching for the pearl of great value. And when he found it, he sold everything he had in order to buy it. Everything. So why would we hold back? Because if we give him everything, he's promised that we'll be provided for, that what we give will be enough, and that if we give him everything, we will find what we're looking for. I think that's a pretty good deal. I think that's a watertight promise if we're prepared to accept it. You know, there are people who live in a dream world and then there are people who love to face reality and then there are people who like to turn one into the other. And in this context, I call those people kingdom people. Ben and Kate are kingdom people. Johnny and Angela, they're kingdom people. You and I are called to be kingdom people. And my challenge to us this morning is to be so devoted to the kingdom, the kingly rule of God over our lives, that everything is measured by it and surrendered to it, including our dreams. Because as a friend of mine has said, the kingdom is both now and not yet, here and yet still to come. Some push all in for the now. Others resign themselves to the not yet. Somewhere in the middle is a space where seeming contradictions hold tension, where mystery is embraced, where God's goodness is championed, where disappointment is mourned and transformed, where faith is strengthened and tested, where life on earth meets with life from above. And it's in this space that anything can happen. This is a bounded space, bounded by God's love, faithfulness, justice, mercy, and grace. And within such limits, the impossible is possible. And if you believe that today, then why would you not give everything to Jesus and continue to pursue your dreams with confidence? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for your kingdom and for all of the rich blessing that is ours as a result of us knowing Jesus and living our lives for Jesus. We pray that you would take us consistently into that bounded space so that we might live for you and represent you well. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Edinburgh Vineyard Podcast. For details of our service times and small groups, please visit edinburghvineyard.org.